podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Ink is about selection. I can't think of another sport that seems so focused on them, and yet so rarely do we ever talk about the process of how teams are actually selected. So I brought on my old boss to talk about them. So my name is uh, Mohamed Khan. I'm the former general manager of the Jamaica Talawas, and very briefly, the St. Lucia Stars. I now work in finance. He uses his knowledge of being a Wall Street trader and someone who won the CPL as general manager, and we talk about the amateur days of selection, forward alarm, what an all-rounder is, our own personal depth charts, and Merv Hughes. I'm going to start this one by telling you a story, which I find very funny, which will say how much selection has changed. About 12 years ago, I think that's right, Merv Hughes was asked about what he thought of the Australian team. He was the selector at the time, and he said, I haven't seen much of it. And whoever was interviewing him sort of said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, I don't have Foxtel, and all the tours are on Foxtel, so unless I'm travelling there, I don't see the cricket. That was someone who was selecting a big three team 12 years ago who basically said he couldn't afford pay TV and that he didn't watch it very much. We have, in cricket, got uh, slightly changed. England now have scouts. So they, if England want to pick a wicketkeeper, they have a bunch of wicketkeeping scouts that they send out to see who the next wicketkeepers are. But I think you and I, the reason we both want to do this podcast is cricket still has a long way to go when it comes to selecting a cricket team, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I mean, I think the advent of franchise T20 cricket has accidentally brought in more merit because there's so much money up for stakes. But generally speaking, I, I actually think that not enough has happened since that Merv Hughes interview. Not <laughs> enough. You know, I think if you if you watch cricket on a, on a daily basis, like like I do, like you probably do, like we live and breathe this stuff, you feel like pulling your hair out. You feel like driving off the road. You know, when you hear things or, or when you think about things, it's literally history repeating itself every single day. And it, it's mm. shocking more because we understand that the countries that may not have the resources, that just may not have kind of like the intellectual capacity to do these types of things. But when you see it happen in, in India, in Australia, in England, it really makes you think, right? Because they have everything. They have all the resources. You know, these things shouldn't happen, but they do. They still continue to happen. You know, I, I was watching Pakistan versus South Africa last night. I was watching West Indies versus Bangladesh last night. And I was like, what was the thought behind this? You know, it just, it's, it, it, you know, I, I always use this kind of analogy is that, you know, these guys, they tend to kind of put a bunch of names in a hat and just pick them out. There's a lot of thought that goes into identifying talent and building a, t- and constructing a team. This is a very complex process that requires intellectual rigor. And I'm waiting for someone to understand that. Weirdly, you know, you were the first person to hire me in cricket when I went to St. Lucia to work under you. And after that, when people would say, what do you do in cricket? I would say, I basically do due diligence for cricket teams. Like, it's my job to make sure that if someone says, what about this guy? I can look them up. And, you know, we had an incredible situation where we had about an hour and a half to work out the draft before the Euroslam last year or whenever it was. I have no idea what year we're in anymore, I suppose. But, and... In an hour and a half's time, we had to be able to go through a name and do due diligence. And you're just like, this is not how cricket teams should be chosen. This is an absolute disgrace. But unfortunately, that is how even little franchises are done. As you said, at the upper ends, there's still a lot of mistakes made. So it was amateur and selectors were amateur up until very, very recently. In fact, I'm sure there are now international teams that still have amateur selectors. But where do you think modern selection goes wrong? 
I go back to this thing and, and it's not actually data driven. I actually think that the way that we think about the game is incorrect, right? We look at really high level stuff. One of the things that really has helped me, you know, going into finance is that is a study of behavioral finance. How do we make decisions? You know, decision-making science. These are huge subjects that require people to read, that require people to learn. And then cricket is in this bubble of, I hate to say it, just, hey, if you're a former player, you're going to get a job. That's just it, right? Because you're a brand, you're a big name, and what you say is true, even though it may not be true. And so where cricket has gone wrong is that the people who are responsible for hiring people in these positions the way that they think about the game of cricket is just incorrect. And so no amount of data, no amount of anything is going to get the outcome right because you're just not thinking about it correctly, right? So I'm a Pakistani fan, right? I grew up in the States, but I'm a Pakistani heritage, but I love Pakistan cricket. And if I talk to any Pakistani fan, no one can tell me why Pakistan won the 1992 World Cup. No one can tell me why Pakistan did well in 1999 or why they won the 2009 T20 World Cup or the 2017 Champions Trophy. Why can't they tell me that? They can't tell me that because there's actually no process in place to identify talent. There's actually no process in place to construct a roster. No one's ever actually sat down and thought about, hey, a test opener looks like this. These are the metrics that are important for a test opener. These are the subjective qualities that are important for a test opener. No one actually knows how to read a scorecard. No one actually knows how to even understand generic statistics. One of the big things right now, very generic, something everyone can understand. A player that averages less than 40 in first-class cricket cannot then average more than 40 in international cricket. And one of the things that I talk about with some of my friends is the last three selectors for Pakistan, Inzamam al-Haq, Mizbah al-Haq, and Mohamed Wasim, have all selected openers for test cricket who average way below 40 in first-class cricket. Sean Masood averages 34. Imran Butt, who recently debuted, averages 35. Imam al-Haq averaged in the mid-30s, 35. Abed Ali is very similar. To then expect them to exceed that average in international cricket is almost impossible, right? There's no data that suggests that that's possible, right? There, there's very few. There's outliers. Yeah. Uh, I think Zach Crawley was, was a recent outlier. Babar Azam was someone who came into international cricket with a, with a... I'm kind of dragging on and on, but I guess my point is, is that... There's no structure or process to weed out those kind of mistakes. No, I think it's really interesting. The 40 average thing is something that I've been very passionate about for a very long time. And so I did research into it. There is about, I think it's something like 6% of players average within zero to five more than their uh, first class average in test cricket. But almost all of those players are picked around the age of 27. They're hitting peak batting age. So if they were in first-class cricket, their first-class averages would have gone up as well. Mm. Players like Crawley, we can get on to Crawley in a minute because he's a really interesting case study of why England picked him. But as a general rule, I always look at James Vince. So James Vince averaged, what was it, 45 in Division 2, 35 in Division 1, or 40 in Division 2 and 30 in Division 1, and 20 or 25 in Test cricket. And it's like he has the perfect pattern of what you would expect a first-class cricketer to have. In a weaker form of first-class cricket, he was quite a good regular performer. He got to the higher level, he struggled a little bit, and then he got to Test level and he struggled a little bit more. That's what it should be. And I'm with you. I think those sort of basic things... Sometimes I'll see a player and they'll play good in their first match and I'll sit next to George Dobell and we'll argue about these players and he'll say, but he's just done well now. And I said, yeah, but he won't be playing in the team in 10 test matches time because he won't be able to replicate what he has just done. That's what a good selection is, not being good in that particular one game. It's when you know more than that. So no, I, th I think you're very, you know, that that's a very accurate way of looking at it. The other way that I, I look at it is when you look at the opening batsman, 
from before and you're talking about the metrics there. I also don't think that when it comes down to role definition, literally there isn't one way to be an opening batsman. You might want two completely different opening batsmen. What are the pairings that you're trying to come up with and all those sorts of things? And I don't think teams are even getting close to that other than if there are two players and one's left-handed and one's right-handed, you go for the left-hander first. So I like to do kind of positional analysis. So building a cricket team for a cricket board is far easier than building a franchise team because when you're building a franchise T20 team, money is involved. So you actually have to do valuations, right? You know, you can't just pick any guy for any amount of money. It actually matters. I always say you have to build teams in layers, right? You can't have the same type of player making a lot of money, right? Like a, a player that's not as good, he's making 100000 when he should be making 60000 That actually causes tension within the dressing room. Or You taught me that. <laughs> it obfuscates your ability to build the team correctly. But I think in international cricket, it's just far easier because you have a huge talent pool. And you have to look at the resources that you have. So you actually have to go down and look at every player in your domestic cricket, every player in your age group cricket, anybody who's qualified to play for you. If there's a 16-year-old in England, he's technically qualified to play for you if you think that he's playing in the age group, right? Mm. You have to consider all of that, right? So you have to have a really wide swath of players that you're considering. But then within that, what are the things that you're looking for? Well, if you look back in history, the two greatest teams in cricket history are the West Indies and Australia. What are consistent with great teams? Well, both of those teams had attacking openers, right? So let's say you're a team that has two openers in test cricket whose strike rates are below 40. Well, that kind of survivalist type of cricket is probably not going to put the type of pressure on the opposition that's going to lead to wins. It can lead to draws, but it's not going to lead to wins. And you have to also look back at history and see what history is saying. If you look at India, India India is probably the most dominant team in cricket right now. They generally play two forward-thinking openers in pretty much all formats, right? So can you have a guy that that has a strike rate in the low 40s? You can. If that's the kind of talent base you have, you you can go for that. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think you, you have to look back at history as well and see what wins. And generally, what I've found as someone who watches all sports what wins in sports are players that generally attack, right? You can't win in the NBA without scoring a lot of points. You can't win in soccer without scoring goals. You can't win in baseball without hitting home runs over a longer term period of time, right? So you can't just fill your team with guys that, that can't hit home runs. You do need some guys who can do that, mm-hmm. right? So I think in cricket, we don't understand history as much. And then we don't reconcile that with the present, right? Because cricket has changed now too, right? There's more data now. Players are playing different shots now. And it's just different, right? So I guess my long-winded answer to that is, what wins? What are the resources that you have? And how do you make sense of that? And so what I think that selectors should do, they should be doing a positional analysis of the type of team that they want to build and reconcile that with the talent that they have available. Yeah, I think also, like if you look in, in England, opening batsmen in England tend to be more dour than opening batsmen in Australia as a general species. But what you also have to now work out is, is that a different opener that you need in England and New Zealand and probably South Africa than you need in Asia and Australia, just because they are different facilities and building that sort of platoon, which to be fair, of all the international teams, looks like England is the one most on top of that, looking for this sort of platoon thinking of, well, if we have three openers and one of them bats number three in certain situations and we can move our side around we dan lawrence is a specialist against spin so dan lawrence can come in and bat three when we go to asia and those sorts of things it's not that that thinking isn't in cricket and when you and i talk to cricketers quite often you can tease that out of them former cricketers and current cricketers it's that the planning isn't in cricket. That theory and taking it to the other level. I remember when Mark Butcher, he was upset when the ECB came out recently and said that it's not just about county cricket, it's about the A-tours and about developing players and all this. And he's like, 
But we knew that in the 90s. It's just that we didn't have those contracts. And it really is about the planning and the preparation, isn't it? And making sure, you know, I go back to the due diligence before, like making sure that you have all of those sorts of systems in place. Because if you don't have systems in place, what happens is you get a former player go, that guy looks good and he plays the next game. And then you end up recycling your same mistakes over and over again. The recency bias is one of cricket's greatest scourges. <laughs> I know how much you like players looking at guys in the nets and deciding their future as well. The nets are... the. I've been on this other... So you said two things that, that I found that are very interesting. Once you talked about platoons and you talked about ATOR. So I think I differ with you on the concept of platoons in that I agree with the idea of a platoon, but I think that that should come once you have a structure in place, right? Yeah. So if you initiate everything that you're doing with that idea of changing courses for courses, I generally don't agree with that. I think that you have to do your, your research should find players that are sustainable over a long period of time that may or may not be possible, but that should be your goal. If you have to change a lot, it becomes hard to remain consistent that way, right? It's hard to get in a groove. I think one of the things that's hurt cricket, and specifically test cricket, is the idea that red ball cricketers are different and white ball cricketers are different. And to an extent, at international level, it's okay. But you're seeing that more and more at domestic level too, right? Your red ball team is different, your white ball team is different. Well, domestic cricket is a place for developing players, right? So one of the things that I have in my depth chart is is a rule I call the Craig Brathwaite rule. Right? So Craig Brathwaite has played about 50 to 60 test matches with an average of 32, right? Out of default because the West Indies, according to them, they don't have openers, right? Well, how can Craig Brathwaite ever get better if he is not playing one-day cricket? He doesn't play any one-day cricket, almost never, right? He's never going to get selected for a CPL team because I think his one-day strike rate is 59, right? So how does that player get better? He doesn't. He doesn't get better because he doesn't have the opportunity, right? So I think... One of my big concerns is domestic cricket isn't structured well, and there's not enough emphasis on players playing in all formats. Mm. A test cricketer gets better by playing T20 cricket. A T20 cricketer gets better by playing four-day cricket. And there's just not enough of that. So that's number one. Number two, you talked about ATORs, and that kind of goes back to the idea that I just mentioned, that international cricket and domestic cricket are not aligned. They're Mm. not scheduled correctly. I think England's probably the best at it, but even they can be better. And I think around the world, it's really bad. You know, I was just looking at one of the players that Pakistan recently selected, Abdullah Shafiq, very bright young player, scored 100 on his first class debut, on his list day debut, and I think even on his T20 debut, uh, I would have to check the statistics, played for Pakistan, went to New Zealand, didn't do well. He's not in a PSL team. He's not in any of Pakistan. He's a backup in the test team. When the first class season starts next year in October, he wouldn't have played first-class cricket for two years. Yeah. So how does someone like that get better? It just seems like the scheduling is not aligned to doing well international cricket and then developing in domestic cricket. Yeah, I think that cricket, if it was sold correctly, you know, if test cricket was sold as a proper package, I think part of that would have to be funding a proper minor league slash G league situation. I think what will happen is Australia, England, and India will just do their own version of that, where they'll occasionally invite New Zealand in or West Indies or Bangladesh in to play that. But realistically, if I was involved with player development at international level now, that is what I want. I want my players ranked, what, 12th through to 38, maybe, regularly playing in different situations where they're being tested against good quality players from overseas. And also, I want to see how they tour. I want to know how they prepare. Are they looking after their own diet? Do they need someone to help them? All those sorts of things that you can do. And I think that at the moment, 
First-class cricket is a great base for us to find out if someone is good at cricket, but it is not a great base to find out if someone is going to be successful in all the different environments that you have to be successful in test cricket. So it'd be interesting to see financially if that is something that cricket can do. But my guess is that the top three nations will do that because it makes sense. I mean, I'm not saying this like it's a genius thing. I'm sure they've all had conversations about this themselves. Yeah, I agree with you. I think I think that's kind of already happening, right? Because they're playing a lot against each other anyways. But I think the only way for the other countries to really catch up is just by playing more cricket. You know, West Indies is starting a one-day competition this week. It's 13 days of one-day cricket. How do you get better if you're playing 13 days of one-day cricket? When are you working on your one-day skills? When, when is that happening? When is the preseason for one-day cricket? You're playing maximum, I think, six games, most of the players. How do you get better? How does Craig Bathway get better if he's not playing any T20 cricket or one-day cricket? It's impossible, right? So just the way that domestic cricket is structured, it just it doesn't lend to either player development and it doesn't actually lend to fulfilling your market potential because I think there's a layer of cricket, which is domestic cricket, which can be marketable, right? And that's just not the T20 leagues. It's more than that. And I think that no one's really doing it. And I think mostly it's because cricket, for the most part, is very politicized, right? Like, in England, in Australia, it's, it's more corporate, but 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 in the rest of the world, it's politicians, you know, involved in cricket, right? Whether it's South Africa, Pakistan, India, and, and obviously their agendas are not aligned with doing things intelligently and thoughtfully. Can't believe you would ever say that about politicians, but you may. <laughs> I want to get back to something you mentioned earlier. I obviously know what this means, but probably not everyone who listens to the podcast will. Can you explain what you mean by depth chart? So a depth chart is a very simple thing where you take all the players that you can potentially select and organize them in a way where it becomes easy to simplify roster construction, right? So you would make a list, like let's say you're building a one-day team, you would make a list of all the openers available to you to play one-day cricket. You would then rate them. You would have a research process to rate those players based on averages, strike rates, boundary counts. You know, obviously you get deeper and deeper into the metrics. And after, once you rate them, it becomes easy to select them because you now have a basis for selecting them or not selecting them, right? And so a depth chart organizes that. Now, people generally think that depth charts are or, or positions in cricket are opener, middle order batsman, wicket keeper, all rounder, fast bowler, spinner. If you're doing it that way, you're going to fail. You're going to fail badly in roster construction. There are particular positions within a position. And basically, what a depth chart does is it organizes that. So, for example, when I am building a T20 team, I have eight or nine different categories for openers. I have the ultra-aggressive opener, right? The guy whose strike rate is above 140. Then I have the 120-plus opener. His strike rate is obviously above 120, but he's more of like a more orthodox type of opener. If you have a strike rate below 120, I will not even think about you. You're not even in the conversation. Mm. But nevertheless, I will still put you in that depth chart. I will make a category for you. And communicate that with you, right? That's what a selector should mm. be doing. I would communicate that with you. Look, this is what's stopping you from being an international cricketer. So these are the things that you have to do to then become an international cricketer, right? So what it does, basically, a depth chart, which is very common, it's not rocket science, is it basically organizes the talent that you have in a meaningful and a more thoughtful way. It's not the end of anything, but it's definitely important. It has to be a part of your draft strategy. It has to be part of how you build teams and select players. Mm. So my one, we'll stick on the opening batsman of T20 cricket. So I have long-stay batsman and short-stay batsman. So batsman who bat far more than average and batsman who bat less. I then have low-strike rate batsmen who also don't last very long, all the way up to high-strike rate batsmen who last very long. I then have 
less than five balls a game. So someone like Chris Gale, I know he can bowl, but he's only going to bowl me less than five balls a game, up until JJ Smuts, who I think mm. bowls more than 12 balls a game, right? So I have all that, and then also I would split it up by left hand, right hand, just so I know right. who the best left handers are. Right handers doesn't matter because they're right across the list anyway. But just so I know who the best left hand is, and I would then split it up maybe slightly further. There aren't many of these, but when Shane Watson was around, there was a couple of guys who could open the batting and bowl seam because that's a very rare skill. So I'd have that. Right, right. So the very rarest thing you would get, and I can't think of anyone of the, who's like this off the top of my head, would have a strike rate over 140, as you said, who bats more than 25 balls per innings, who is left-handed and bowls seam. Like if you could find that player, you would basically give them all the money in the world because they tick off so many things for your team. Is Cameron Green that player? Is Cameron Green that player? He's not left-handed, so he's al- he's already down on that. I don't think Cameron Green's going to end up with a strike rate over 140 as a batsman, but he could be on a lot of those lists. You're right. So that's basically what you're doing, and I think that's the difference between the way that you and I look at these things. I didn't know what a depth chart was. It was you, you who really um who filled me in on that. Now I have about 48 of them. But I have a lot of depth charts in my life. <laughs> I use it for everything. I've actually created something different now. I've actually created this thing called my finance background, a thing called a ratings master. Right. So when you evaluate a business at the end of your research process, which in finance takes two to three months, you put a rating on a company, right? You say this is best buy rated, this is buy rated, this is a hold, this is a sell. Don't even go near it, right? I actually have started to do that with NBA players, with with cricket players, with with, with soccer players. We're talking about openers. One of the things that I think it's worth talking about, and I think it's one of the biggest inefficiencies in cricket, is all-rounders. The fact that no one understands what an all-rounder is. And I think uh, a couple of years ago, RCB was the poster child of not knowing what an all-rounder is because they thought that Corey Anderson was a genuine all-rounder. He is believe, not a genuine all-rounder. I believe they also thought he was a death bowler. So they were wrong yeah, yeah. on many different things. I think you're right. I mean, I, that's, I've written a lot about all-rounders because I think people think there are a lot of all-rounders out there. And what there are is a lot of people who are either okay at both skills, which means that they're a risk for your team to begin with, or they're very good at one skill and they're very part-time at the other skill. There are very few players who are actually in any way genuine all-rounders, and there are very few players who are functioning all-rounders. Exactly. I'm with you on that. The only player, in my opinion, who is a genuine all-rounder, probably in the world, is Shakib Hassan. He can bat in the top four in any format, mm-hmm. and he's going to bowl 20 overs a day in, in test cricket. He's going to bowl 10 overs in one-day cricket, and he's going to be a really effective in both skills, right? He is the only genuine all-rounder in the world. So we like to look at all-rounders as a kind of like the chauvinistic, very kind of like a male chauvinistic ideal in that you know, an all-rounder is Kapil Dave, Imran Khan. Well, things have changed now, right? The, you know, the physicality of cricket has changed. You look at Ben Stokes. Ben Stokes is considered an all-rounder, but he rarely bowls, right? And it's not exciting to say, hey, Shakib is the best all-rounder in the world. He's the only genuine all-rounder because he's a left-arm spinner. And he's not necessarily a guy who's going to come in and just clear the ropes from ball one. But in terms of how good he is as a batsman, how good he is as a bowler, yeah, he's a genuine all-rounder. But And then they can change by format, right? So... Andre Mm. Russell is a genuine all-rounder in T20 cricket. He may not be in test cricket, right? He may not be good enough as a batsman, may not bowl long enough. He struggles even in T20 cricket now, but but even in the other formats, you know, it changes by format. Mm. So I I generally have a a thing where these are my guys that have the potential to become genuine all-rounders. And then this guy's a batting one, this guy's a bowling all-rounder. And it's important to make that distinction because you don't want to do what RCB did with Corey Anderson, where you have him bowling at the death, even though he almost never bowls. So he actually doesn't want to bowl, but you made him into a death bowler. 
Yeah, I think he actually stopped bowling not long after that, partly because it threw injury, but also because he was like, I'm not a bowler. This isn't working well for me. Right. So I wrote during their 2019 World Cup that I think Shakib is the only genuine all-rounder. But what I would say about Stokes is, I'm not sure he's a top four bowler for England, but he could certainly bowl a lot more overs for England. I think England have been very smart with how they've used him, which is, I think that if Andre Russell he had functioning knees and Andre Russell could play test cricket. Looking at his early first class record, he could have a very similar career to Ben Stokes, except you couldn't bat him at five or six. You'd have to bat him at seven. Right, right. But he could certainly bat at seven and bowl 20 overs a day. I think he'd be incredible. Since we've mentioned some specifics of players, there's a couple that I want to run past you. Fawad Alam obviously has an incredible career where he disappeared for a long time. And he has to play a part in this. I've written this before, because if you're batting at number five in first-class cricket, you know that everyone thinks that you're getting easy runs, even if that's not true. You know that because that's how cricketers talk, and he would have talked to cricketers before, and he knows that's how selectors think. At what stage do you think in his reign in first-class cricket, as a smart, savvy selector, do you go to him with a plan and just say, look, we just want you to bat at three? for a year, a year and a half here, or we want you to try yourself as a makeshift opener or whatever your plan is, or say to him, we need you to bat. If you want to bat for Pakistan, you have to bat here, or these are the things you have to do, because he obviously wasn't going to knock Misbara Yunus out of that spot, and Asad Shafiq was ahead of him. So would you have gone to him after a couple of years and tried to manufacture him into something else, or what would your plan have been with him? I'm so happy you asked me this question. I've been waiting <laughs> for this question for like 10 years. The story of Fawad Alam is the greatest tragedy in Pakistan cricket, in my opinion. And it shows cricket snobbery, incompetence, corruption, and a complete lack of understanding of what batting talent looks like. Because we think batting talent is a beautiful cover drive, a six off the first ball. And Fawad Alam's skill from the day he started playing domestic cricket till now is the same. He's a hardworking guy who just knows how to score runs. That's it. That's his skill. He's very patient. And so to answer this question, you have to actually understand the narrative of his career. Fawad Alam actually emerged in 2007 in one of Pakistan's first domestic T20 competitions where he was considered the best all-rounder. He was the best fielder, he was the best bowler, and he was the best batsman. No one would even think of Fawad Alam as a T20 cricketer now. In fact, he recently just played second 11 T20 cricket. And that's how he emerged. He was in that team that won the 2009 T20 World Cup. He was in that team. He then played really well in one-day cricket. He has a one-day average above 40, scored 50s in England, scored 50s in Australia. In really adverse circumstances, Pakistan cricket was a mess at that time. He came back in the Asia Cup in 2014 under Mizbah's captaincy, scored a brilliant 100 against Sri Lanka, went backs against the wall. And remember, this is a guy who's not only playing against the opposition, he's fighting for his life every time he goes out to bat because the selectors and cricket culture of Pakistan doesn't accept the way that he plays, right? In his first test match, he opens the batting, even though he's been a middle-order batsman his entire life, scores 168. After the team folded in the first inning for, I think, 90-odd, right? So this is someone who knows how to score runs, always has, always will. And even at 34, he's scoring runs now the same way he always did, right? And I had conversations with Mickey Arthur about him very briefly. And again, it was the same thing, cricket snobbery. I think one of the quotes that will go down in, in the history of Pakistan cricket is, is Inzamam's quote, that there are better batsmen in domestic cricket than Fawad Alam. Pakistanis definitely have big egos. I don't expect him to apologize for that. So now, going back to the where did he fit? Well, to be honest with you, he should have been playing one-day cricket. He should have been playing test cricket for the last 10 years, hmm. right? For a team that has a very flaky batting lineup, to not have someone like that in that lineup is criminal. He's very fit. Even at 34, he's probably the fittest guy in that team. He can bowl a little bit. 
just a very mature guy, right? Now, Asad Shafiq versus Fawad Alam. Well, I think that the competition was never Asad Shafiq versus Fawad Alam. The competition was Fawad Alam debuted before Azhar Ali. He debuted before Asad Shafiq, right? He debuted before them and performed, right? So it's not Fawad versus Azhar or Asad. And if you look at sustainability, we talk about competitive advantage. Well, Fawad has had more memorable innings in the last month than Asad Shafiq had over an 80 test career. So I think that says everything. I mean, it was an absolute tragedy and it just shows how terrible selection is in Pakistan. Hey, I, I don't like this guy. I don't get it. I don't get why he score runs. Well, you don't get why you score runs because you don't look at the data. You don't go to the ground and actually watch him bat from the first ball to the last ball. Now, your point about batting him at three, yeah, he could have done that. You're right. Uh, you know, maybe in domestic cricket, batting at five is a little easy, but I would disagree with you because you probably know a lot of people that operate within Pakistan cricket. For a long time, Pakistan has used like the grazed ball hmm. and the grazed ball is just moves all over the place, right? It, it is why Pakistan now has 120 and 130K trundlers as opposed to fast bowlers, right? Because it's so easy to get wickets with the grazed ball. Well, in the last, I think, five years, Pakistan has used the grazed, the dukes, and the kookaburra. For all this sport, Against all of them. Mm. And in different environments too, right? Yes, he scored a lot of runs in Karachi, but he's gone to Pindi in the north of Pakistan where it's a little harder. Yeah. I mean, I get that. When I say you bat at number five in first-class cricket, I'm not thinking about the balls because people bat at number five in England in Dukes in green conditions. What I'm thinking about is you're, you're more likely to be facing the first change bowlers. That's when I think number five is a huge advantage. And I get why teams do that. That's why... Let's say Asad Shafiq is in the team, right? And he showed a lot early on. And so your four, five, and six is covered. That's the point where I think a smart selector, someone in charge, director of cricket, coach, whoever it is, goes to him and say, you're the best batsman in first-class cricket. We already know that. You're not in this team because you're seen as a number four or five or six, and we have that covered. So my thing would have been to him at this point, do you think you can make it as an opener or as a number three? You've already made 100 as an opener in Test Match Cricket, so we trust you, but what do you think? Now, what can we put around you to help you in that situation? What do you need? Is there someone you want to work with specifically? Is there someone you want as a mentor? That's what I would have done, and that's why I brought him up specifically, because I think that is the thing that just doesn't happen. You get these terrible conversations and nothing more. So I think you bring up a great point. The difference between what we're talking about and what happens in those selection meetings is that we're actually talking about this, that this is an option, <laughs> that we can actually go to Fawad and say, hey, maybe you should be an opener because Pakistan hasn't found an opener since Saeed Amir retired in 2003, right? No one in that selection meeting is having this conversation. No one's actually communicating <laughs> with Fawad, right? So it's like, it's almost a moot point because that conversation is not happening, right? So I think the other conversation is, how do you actually build a squad? Got it. Azhar is there at three, Misbah is there at five, Yunus is at four, Asad's at, at, at six. You always carry a backup middle order batsman with you, right? For nothing, you know, there's going to be an injury or player development, right? Like you have a five test series, which Pakistan don't. You rampage through those first four tests. Hey, the fifth test is a great opportunity to blood somebody, to give someone an opportunity to integrate a new player. Well, how many players played in that position? If Bahad Ahmed went on the tour in 2016, Haris Sohail. Haris Sohail hasn't played a, a first class game since 2014. He's a regular in the, in the, in the test team until recently, right? So there's so many guys that usurped him. All-rounders were played at that number six position. And specifically after Mizbah and Yunus left, right? That was a time, again, that was another opportunity. Hey, bring him in. Well, mm. Inzaman brought in Saad Ali, who's also a really good player who people have kind of forgotten about in, in domestic cricket. Very good player. But it's a pity because I think a lot of people are justifying the narrative now, saying that, hey, 
in this new system, Fawad is getting an opportunity. It's not the system. This was an accident. Let's mm-hmm. not say that this was a well-thought-out plan. This just happened. It wasn't as if Fawad was being carried for the last six years. A spot opened up and he came in. That didn't happen. This was just a, a shot in the dark and a lot of clamor from the media in Pakistan. And uh, he's justifying it. I mean, one of the things I read online recently was someone saying that, hey, you know, he, after he scores 100 in New Zealand, he's like, yeah, you know, Fawad is going to do really well in Pakistan. He's, he's going to be better on those wickets. I was like, hmm, he just scored 100 in New Zealand under severe pressure against really good fast bowlers. He's good in all conditions. Hmm. He just doesn't look good while he's playing. Yeah. So this is my big problem with the Tim Payne selection, where you will hear people go, oh, isn't it great? They brought him back and they played a flyer. And it's like, well, they didn't pick him because they thought he was the right option. They picked him because Neville didn't work. So they went back to Wade from Neville. Wade didn't work. And then they went, who is the only guy around here who literally we don't have to worry about at the moment? And it happened to be that in about a month and a half's first class games, I think, I, I can't remember if it was three or four, it wasn't many. He had shown that his batting was back to a level that people felt comfortable with. It was a complete luck flyer suggestion, which ended up with him becoming the captain of the team and this whole narrative around Tim Payne. It's like, no one gets any credit for that because if you get credit for that, you have to get credit for the mistakes that you made beforehand, for going back to Matthew Wade and whatever happened with Neville in the first place. I mean, how is Neville such a good first-class cricketer and didn't feel comfortable with it when he was in the test team? What was happening? What was the environment there that allowed for that? Because it still doesn't make... He's still... His numbers are still much better than Tim Payne's numbers when it look when you look at batting. So it doesn't make any sense to me. So I think it's really interesting when you talk about that because eventually when they make the decision, it's a masterstroke. And it's like, well, it's not, it's not a masterstroke unless you can tell me step by step by step how you made all the correct decisions to get to this point. So it goes back to my thought about why Pakistan won the 1992 World Cup. No one can tell you that. No one has an answer for that, right? So the reason that you have a research process or a decision-making process for every step of talent identification or roster construction is so you can replicate it. Does that research process mean that you will never make a mistake? No, it doesn't mean that. You can make a mistake because at the end of the day, humans are making judgments, right? Even with data, right? I know there's a culture now with data of plausible deniability. Oh, the data says this. So let the data make the decision. No, humans still have to make the decision at the end. You're going to get some right. You're going to get some wrong. But if you have a research process in place that makes sense, that is based in facts and data, then you're going to make more right decisions than wrong decisions. And that's why you have it. But what we have now, whether it's Pakistan, whether it's South Africa as a team, a country that has unbelievable talent, they're nowhere. West Indies still has really good talent. You know, mind the averages, but they have really good talent. It's just that the people that are picking the talent, they don't have a process. They're just like, hey, this guy averaged 50 last year. Bring him in. No, there's more to it. It's, it's, it's more complex. It's more nuanced. And it's one of the reasons why players like Fawad Alam have been ignored for a long time. Before him in Pakistan, we had Asim Kamal. We wasted Yasser Hamid in the 80s. This is not a new thing. This is not a 2010s or 2000s thing. This was happening in the 90s. This was happening in the 80s. This was happening in the 70s. And it's not a Pakistan thing either. This is, this is a cricket problem. Right across the board. Yeah, definitely. One of the things that I actually wanted to talk about was India is the best team in the world, right? I, I know England won the, the one-day World Cup and they're great in T20 cricket and they, they have you know, blockbuster players, specifically on the batting side. Yeah, and the bowling side. But India's the best team, right? Across all formats, they're probably the best team, the most consistent team, irrespective of winning a World Cup, right? It's the same thing with the West Indies. West Indies come and they win a T20 World Cup and then they're ninth in T20 throughout the year, right? 
And we praise India. But the inefficiency is that even India, who have gotten a lot more smarter than they used to be, is making a lot of mistakes. One of the things I have written down for this is in the first test match of the series against Australia, their openers were Prithvi Shaw and Mayank Agarwal. They were their best openers, right? Rohit Sharma was unavailable and Saha was their best wicketkeeper, right? That's what they said. He's their best wicketkeeper. He's the best natural wicketkeeper that we have. In the fourth test, Rishabh Pant was the guy who was wicketkeeping. The openers were Rohit Sharma and Shubnam Gill. How did that happen? You know, like, well, there was a huge disconnect. There, you know, Rishabh Pant is the reason they probably won this series. Shubnam Gill as well. Obviously, it's a lot of guys, not just one guy. But hmm. we're going to remember Pant for playing the defining innings, for putting the most fear in that attack, right? So where was he? Where was he in that first test? If Prithvi Shaw is, this, is a great batsman, and he is, even if he got a zero in, those, in that first test, what changed? It was just that those two innings changed everything completely. And, and so that's the inefficiency in cricket, that even the best team, India, is doing things like that. England, you know, a team with immense resources, allowed Joe Denley to play 15 test matches with no record in international cricket or domestic cricket to say that he was going to be successful. That gives hope to countries like Pakistan, to West Indies, to South Africa. New Zealand is really good. I think New Zealand's, they're really efficient with the, with the things that they're doing. And I think they actually deserve not only mention, but discussion, right? Think about it. They have a guy in Kyle Jamison who, he may be that all-rounder. He may be a genuine all-rounder. I know he's batting at eight, but if you watch him bat, he looks pretty good. He could bat higher than eight probably, right? And he hasn't really gone in the T20 circuit yet, so people don't really know him. Um, but, oh. but, but I wanted to mention this inefficiency because it's something that we ignore because India won. And I think it's, it's important to talk about because if there were smarter teams out there, then if Australia was smarter, maybe they wouldn't have won. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I want to finish up actually to talk about T20 specific because I, I know that obviously, well, both of us have worked in that. You as a general manager come up with your plans and your thoughts on on how to structure this together. But because of the way that cricket is sort of historically and then also the way that T20 is, you then have problems with agents who have relationships with owners. You have the captain who has played against the guy once and has an oversized view on that player based on that one time they went up against him. Sometimes you'll have coaches who bring in players. You have the owners who have relationships with players. Making a selection in a T20 franchise is confusing in a different way than it is at test or international level, isn't it? This is a really important subject, actually. I wish we had more time to talk about it, but there are four players in both franchise T20 cricket and in cricket board, right? You have the governing members of the cricket board and in countries like India, Pakistan, etc. They have an outsized opinion, right? Like Saurav Ganguly, his opinion matters a lot in India, right? And within a T20 franchise, you have the owner, you have the captain, you have people like me who are general managers, uh, which I, I think it's a little bit less, right? People like me are more like analysts as opposed to general managers, but I haven't gone down that route. You have the general manager, you have the coach, you have the captain, and you have the owner, right? That's four people, four people making decisions. And my opinion has always been that only one person can make a decision. And in fact, I, I always say that what qualifies a captain and a coach, and this may lead to me never getting a job again, what qualifies <laughs> a captain and a coach from making those decisions? A captain is barely watching cricket. How can he make a decision on a player? And with an owner, I think it's important that if you're a chief selector, if you're a general manager, don't take the job if you don't have complete authority because I did that once and I got screwed. You know, I worked with a really good owner in, in Jamaica. And I think one of the reasons why we were successful, apart from having amazing players and, and, and a really good coach in Paul Nixon, was that our owners trusted the people that they hired. And the reason that we 
he didn't do as well in St. Lucia is that the owner didn't trust the people he hired, right? So that team was the owner, it was me, it was the captain, and it was the coach. And that's just four different visions. And that just doesn't work, right? And so when you have a chief selector and he's talking to the captain, he's talking to the coach, he has people on the governing board who have opinions, he has other selectors. That's like 10 different people who have different visions. You're not going to make good decisions when, when that happens, right? You hire a general manager, you hire a chief selector, give him the authority, do whatever you want. You're going to be accountable for the results. And that just doesn't happen enough, right? And obviously those people have to co-op different things, right? They have to have people in data and analytics that back up their decisions, right? Uh, and so you, you want to collaborate with all of them, but the person making that final decision has to be the general manager, right? And we saw that in St. Lucia. I think, I think it was a great experience. I, I think it, I was so happy later on that I had that experience because it taught me where I went wrong. And where I went wrong in, in St. Lucia was I didn't put my foot down. Uh, I should have resigned a lot earlier because even though there's a lot of guys in that team that I liked, that wasn't the team that I was trying to build, the team that, that was created. And and still, I mean, I think about it, that team was one and nine when we took over. It was four and six the following year, the year that you know me and you worked together. And we should have been in the playoffs if Darren Bravo didn't hit 90 runs of 30 deliveries. And we decided not to bolt KSM in a game where we scored 230 runs. <laughs> and who's gone on to become one of the most sought-after leg spinners in, in the T20 circuit. We didn't bowl him. Yeah, we made a lot of mistakes early on. And I think yeah. for me, going into that environment where I remember after you left, me and Karen Pollard sitting down and chatting about what we had learned. And I said, it's been incredible for me because I feel like almost everything that we did was wrong. And so that by doing the opposite of everything we've done is almost the most simple game plan that you could ever have. And then you would just bring in your own ideas. It was an absolute baptism of fire. And, you know, it was such an interesting experience. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'll have you back. You know, I'd like to go through the Jamaica days one day with you and we can talk real general manager to part-time general manager of uh, T20 franchises and have a good chat. But let's not do it all today because I know you've got a lot to say and then I can have a whole nother episode from it. So thank you very much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Jared. It, it was nice to be on the podcast. And, and yes, I have a lot more ammunition. Matthew Wade, Usman Khwaja. We didn't even <laughs> get into it. And, and, and the Jamaica days, those were good days. And, and, and who knows, I may be back soon. Thank you for listening. There are links to works by my guests in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets.